I'm going to be teaching, um, trying to avoid just rehashing all of those teachings. So I, I really do encourage you to go back through those if you can. Um, but it's also good that to see that not many. Uh, I'm going to do just some overview work tonight. Uh, so it's good to see that not many of you have um, necessarily been going through those. So this week on our reading schedule, uh, we got through the beginning of chapter 9. And uh, if you remember how Luke is outlined, I shared it last week, there's an introduction, which is about the first four chapters, the introduction and the preparation for Jesus' ministry. Chapter uh, 4 through 9, which we're going to cover tonight in, in overview fashion, have to do with his ministry in Galilee, in and around Galilee. And then from 9 through 19 are his journey to Jerusalem. And then from 20 to the end of the book are his ministry in Jerusalem, and in and around the temple, and then obviously his death and resurrection uh, at the end of the gospel. Um, also, just to remind us, and these are all on the, the other teachings... Uh, the key themes of Luke. I don't think I've done this yet. Uh, so let me just walk through some key themes that Luke highlights in his gospel. The first one and the biggest one, I would say, the overarching theme of both Luke and Acts is the theme of salvation. Jesus is the Savior. And Jesus is the salvation both that Israel was longing for And the salvation that from Israel will spread out to the ends of the earth. And also along with that theme, the whole idea of Jesus as the Savior. In uh, chapter 19, we have, I think, what what is a great summary of the Gospel of Luke. It says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's in Luke that we get the great parables of the lost things. In chapter 15, the lost coin. Oh, there are people in the waiting room. Let me limit it. Let them in. Admit. Admit. I'm not sure why it started making me let people in. I tried to turn the setting off. But, oh, well. So, Jesus as Savior. The one who came to seek and save that which was lost. Both among his own people, but also in a broader sense, the Gentile, the nations that uh, need to come back into the presence of God. So salvation is a key theme. And in the teachings, on the, in the old teachings, I really unpack that. I spend a lot of time um, talking about what that means in the Gospel of Luke. Another theme that we come across quite a bit is prayer. Jesus is often seen, particularly in the section that we covered this week, chapters 4 through 9, constantly retreating in prayer. We have some great teaching on prayer in the Gospel of Luke. Um, It's after Peter sees Jesus praying that then Jesus comes and he says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Also a key theme in the Gospel of Luke is the work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And obviously this, uh, in a big way, uh, spills over into the book of Acts as well. We know much of what we know about the Holy Spirit through Luke's writing. 
Another key theme is the, uh, I would say, the value of women to the purposes of God. Luke seems intent on highlighting the way that he uses women to bring about his purposes into the earth. The first three chapters, uh, the guy, the man, the priest, he's struck dumb and he has to shut up until John is born. And the, who we hear from the rest of the time in that introductory section is from Elizabeth and Mary. And, and what a beautiful uh, picture of just submission to God and abandonment to his purposes and what God can really do through a, a, a totally yielded soul. Uh, behold, uh, your handmaid, be it unto me according to your word. Mary was able to, to cooperate with God to bring Jesus into the world through uh, her, her humility and her submission to God. Luke will often pause and just say, and there were these women among them, there were these women among them, and he highlights that there was a group of women that traveled with him and uh, provided for him out of their means. They became something of Jesus' patrons in his ministry. Uh, so Luke really does highlight uh, the role of women in the work of the kingdom. The valuable place of women in the work of the kingdom. The other thing he highlights is the way that Jesus comes to, to seek and to save that which was lost uh, in, among the poor. Not just the economically poor, but the, also the poor in reputation. Right? The people that no one really likes. They could be wealthy people, like a tax collector, but nobody likes a tax collector. All right, so he goes to seek the poor, the outcast. Those that society would have given up on. Society would have counted out. Jesus says, I come to bring salvation to these people. And then finally, uh, Luke really does emphasize what we spent a month talking about a few weeks ago. uh, And that is the cross and the way of the cross. Not so much the the work of the cross. Remember, we differentiated between the work of the cross and and, uh, making atonement for us. But the way, of a cro- the way of the cross is the whole shape of a life lived uh, in the kingdom. A life lived that, that lays down uh, one's own rights and lays down one's own preferences to see, uh, to see the purposes of God come to pass. So Jesus is constantly saying, yes, I am going to Jerusalem, but it's not to clean house. It's not to stage a coup. It's to, it's to be uh, mistreated and, and mocked and spat upon and to be scourged and to be crucified. That's what awaits us in Jerusalem. And so following me, following in my footsteps is following in the path of suffering and rejection. So Luke highlights that in many ways. Um, so, at, working from that outline with those themes, you can get a good grasp of what Luke is doing in his gospel. Some of the unique things that he's adding to our picture of the, of the ministry of Jesus. So, I want to give next just a brief overview of his Galilean ministry. All right, And this section, you know, after the really well-crafted um, narrative of the first three chapters... This section is a little bit harder to follow in terms of the progression of the the narrative. It's much more, you could say, episodic or um, anecdotal 
It's just this story and then this story and then this story. And you really have to, um, you have to rely on some of the themes that Luke keeps coming back to to give shape and structure to this Galilean ministry. Okay, So that's what I want to kind of do tonight. Uh, attempt to do. So Luke itself in his writings shows how everybody really knew that Jesus' ministry started in Galilee. That that's where, that this is a guy out of, out of Galilee. You know, on like, uh, on those football, on the football games, they're really like the national games when they have like the real high production value and they have the starting lineups. They have a little video from each player. You've seen this, right? And they say, I'm so-and-so from the Ohio State University or from some technical college that no one's heard of. <laughs> but they state where, they, where they're from. Right? And even though they play on, a, on an NFL team, they're from the Ohio State University. That's what Galilee is for Jesus. Hey, oh, he's that guy out of Galilee. He's that guy that did that ministry in Galilee. So listen to a couple of verses here in uh, 23.5. It says, They were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. This is that guy from Galilee. And then in Acts... It says this, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. So, when they're recounting the story of Jesus, they say, yeah, it started there in Galilee. Okay, so what we have in this section, chapters four through nine, are the beginnings of what Jesus is all about. All right, if to, to carry on the sports analogy even further, um, this is this is like if you if you look at this section of Jesus life, it's like looking back at Michael Jordan's rookie year. Or Michael Jordan's, uh, even his, his North Carolina footage. You can tell, like, it, it still looks familiar from later, later Michael Jordan. And I'm a Bulls fan, I'm a 90s kid. You can still tell it's him, but everything is there, but it's in sort of its, its uh, embryonic form. All right? it's, it's, it's there and it's kind of, it's waiting to grow. So there's a lot of seeds, a lot of like rookie year stuff here uh, in Jesus' ministry. If the Lord will forgive me for using that as an analogy for his ministry in Galilee. Um, so just so we know what we're talking about, Galilee, I think Mason, can you uh, put up that? I have some multimedia, multimedia reinforcements here tonight. It's just a map of Galilee. It's probably the same as the one that's in the back of your Bible. Uh, by the way, as he's pulling that up, Luke really does. If you just look at all the, the locations in Luke, the settings in Luke, it tells a pretty interesting story. Right? It opens in Jerusalem and ends in Jerusalem. Um, things sort of are, are punctuated by trips to Jerusalem. Uh, but then, all right, if you can maybe sort of see that. Is there any way to zoom in on it? Oh, look at this. Look at this. Okay, so there's Galilee. Down south is Jerusalem. So Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Then they take him to... Bethlehem is south... 
west of Jerusalem down there. And Judea, this is important to know too, because sometimes a location is a town, sometimes it's more of a region. So it's, it's important to, to just kind of have it in your, uh, have it in your, your mental picture of, of this stuff. So Judea is down there by Jerusalem. And uh, one confusing thing is that sometimes Luke will say Judea, but really what he means is just the Jewish lands. But he doesn't really mean the region of Judea. It's still just where the Jews are. Okay, so Judea can be that place, but it can also be just a general term for where the Jews dwell. Okay, so go up to Galilee. So there you see Bethlehem, Jerusalem down there. And then there's Galilee. And most of the locations that are mentioned here in chapters 4 through 9 are listed. There's Nazareth. That's his hometown. That's where he grew up. But that's very close to, what is that, around the actual Sea of Galilee. There's Capernaum and uh, Gennesaret, Bethsaida, and Gergesa. That's also, and then do you see Gadara down there? That's that's the place of the Decapolis. That's the region that that's called. That's where the, uh, it's either called the Gadarene or the Gerasene demoniac, depending on uh, which gospel you're in. Uh, that's where that guy, they, they go over to the other side of the sea and cast the demons out of that guy. There's Nain right there. Uh, also, he mentions Nain. That's where he raises, uh, raises someone from the dead. So this is where we are. We're hanging out in Galilee. And so Galilee is the region, and there's lots of different towns within Galilee, the region. <clears throat> All right, so I'm not going to walk through systematically chapters 4 through 9, but I want to just pull out some highlights um, in a flyover fashion. Basically, what's happening here in this section is Jesus Jesus is doing things and he's saying things. Okay, Uh, Luke says, in my first book of Theophilus, I began to cover all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And so here in Galilee, Jesus is doing and he is teaching, okay? And what he's doing and teaching is he's demonstrating the way that the Savior operates, the way salvation is coming into the earth. Okay, chapters 1 through 3 say there is a Savior. God has has declared his salvation. This man, John the Baptist, and this man, Jesus, are going to bring salvation. John's going to announce it and Jesus is going to do it. So we have all these predictions and anticipation of salvation is coming. But in chapters 4 through 9, we get to begin to see what that actually looks like. Okay, so Jesus goes out. He's baptized. He goes out into the wilderness. Then he's tempted. And then it says, and he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And he begins his ministry in the power of the Spirit. And the first thing he does is he opens up, he goes to a synagogue, and he opens up the scroll to Isaiah, and it's Isaiah chapter 40. Actually, no, it's Isaiah chapter 61. Which is in a, in a section of Isaiah that are all about the salvation of God coming. The salvation of God coming. This would have been one of the, the key scriptures. Really, Isaiah 40 through 66 is the second half of the book. They all have to do with the coming salvation of God. 
The song we sang, rend the heavens and come down. That's in Isaiah 40 through 66. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here he's saying, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I have rent the heavens and I have come down. Here I am. Gotta let more people in. Hello, thank you for joining us. So what does salvation look like? What does he do? He says, I'm here. And I am the Savior that, this, that the Old Testament is pointing toward. I am here. And then he goes out and he casts out a demon. And he heals many. And he preaches in the synagogues. And then he goes and he calls his first disciples. He cleanses a leper. He heals a paralytic who's let down through the roof. So what he's doing is salvation is here. Now, here's what it looks like. Unclean spirits are being driven out. Diseases are being healed. And I'm here to come for the poor, the crippled, the outcast. And I am saving them. So then he gathers his disciples. He gives a big extended block of teaching that's parallel to the Sermon on the Mount, except in Luke it says he went out on a level place, which fits nicely with Luke's theme of God comes to tear down and judge the proud, but lift up the humble. And this is also a theme that's in Isaiah, when uh, it says that... uh, when he sends the messenger, it's the, it's the scripture that John the Baptist fulfills. I send my messenger and he will make the crooked path straight. And he will make the valley, he will raise up the valley and he'll bring down the mountains. So here's Jesus on the level place preaching the kingdom of God. The way of the kingdom, the way of life in the kingdom. The other thing that you see in chapters 4 through 9, Jesus is pretty consistent. He comes out, and what does salvation look like? Well, it looks like healing. It looks like lifting up the humble. It looks like uh, bringing down the proud. So Jesus pretty much does, and he says the same things all through chapters 4 through 9. He works miracles. He, he proclaims the kingdom. But the thing that you have to look for is all the various ways that people respond to what Jesus does. And this is where you can really start to understand what Luke's trying to show us. Jesus goes and he heals, and some people rejoice. Jesus goes and he heals, and then some people get mad at him. Wait a minute, what's going on here? So the other thing that's highlighted here is everybody's varying response to Jesus. And it, it begins to, it, it comes to a climax by chapter 9 at the end of the section. Who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Right? He goes out and he gets, the word goes around and, and it's, everybody's amazed and everyone's coming to him. But then people get, begin to respond in different ways. And so what you see is that the poor or the desperate or the helpless, or the, those of ill repute, or the sick, they are generally better prepared to receive the word of salvation than those in power or the, or the wealthy. Peter says, 
After Jesus uh, brings a, a big catch of fish, he says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. The centurion, the centurion says, I am not worthy to have you come. And Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this, even in all of Israel. On the other hand, the Pharisees say of the centurion, hey, you need to do this miracle for him because he is worthy. There's the scene in Simon's house. He has Jesus over for a meal. This is another thing Luke tells us a lot about. Jesus has a lot of meals in the book of Luke, one of which we mentioned just now. That's the the climactic meal. Then he has another meal at the end of the book where they're known to him in the breaking of the bread. Jesus is always eating in the book of Luke. He's sharing food with people. But in the meal in Simon's house, the sinful woman comes up and anoints. She breaks open the costly perfume and she anoints his feet. And nobody really gets it. And Simon says, hey, she's not, you're not a prophet, obviously, because you have no idea what she's doing to you. And he says, no, this is actually what I'm looking for. You, Simon, are the one who doesn't understand it. By the end, toward the end of the section in chapter 8, we finally have Jairus, who's actually, he's a ruler of a synagogue, and he's getting it, which is interesting. Finally, one of, one of Jesus' people, one of the Jews, is beginning to understand what's going on here and actually receive him. But this is what Jesus did. He came to his own, and his own received him not. So you see the poor really ready to receive the salvation and really bearing fruit as Jesus comes into their lives. You see the Pharisees opposing him to greater and greater measures through this section. And Jesus predicts this right, up, right in the beginning of the section. He says, listen, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. What I'm doing, you don't have a frame of reference for. So unless you ditch your frame of reference, it's all going to blow up. It's all going to shatter. They have a system and Jesus doesn't fit into their system. And so they begin to get angrier and angrier and oppose him more and more. The whole idea of response is summarized in in one of my favorite parables, the parable of the sower. And that's in Luke 8. Listen, a sower went out to sow. And Jesus, all through chapter 4 through 9, is a sower. And he is sowing. He is sowing the word. He is sowing miracles. He is sowing invitation to come and follow him. And he says, yeah, some people are going to get it. Some people aren't going to get it at all. Some people are going to get it, but then they're going to fall away in time of testing. Some people are going to kind of get it, but the money and the stuff in their life is going to choke it out. How many of the themes in the Gospel of Luke do you see in the parable of the sower? The heart of heart. Those who... Hear it immediately with joy, but in time of testing, when the real call to discipleship comes, they fall away. Those who don't bear fruit because of their status or their wealth, the rich young ruler, I think of, later in Luke. Right? So the parable of the sower really does summarize uh, a lot that Luke is highlighting for us in terms of Jesus going out to sow the word, to, to give invitation to give the message of salvation and, and people responding in very different ways. The section begins, it's also about Jesus' identity. 
Okay, so it's about his, his, his message, his purpose, the response to his works and deeds. But it's also about Jesus' identity being established. All through chapters 4 through 9, you see people trying to grapple with who in the world is this guy? The Nazarene synagogue, his hometown church, doesn't know who he is. Hey, isn't this Joseph's son? The Pharisees don't know who he is or what he's trying to do. Herod gets perplexed. He thinks, man, did John the Baptist uh, rise from the dead or what's going on with this guy? John the Baptist, even, who was the one who proclaimed him and came, when he's thrown in prison, he sends messengers to ask Jesus, hey, are you really him? (laughs) And so all through this, Jesus' identity is called into question, but it's continually confirmed. First, at the beginning of the section in Jesus' baptism, the voice from heaven says, you are my son. And then at the end, in chapter 9, in the transfiguration, you are my son. This is my son. Listen to him. So Jesus' identity is doubly confirmed by God in chapters 4 through 9. People are wrestling with who is he. And then it's, at the, it's in chapter 9 as well where Peter's confession comes. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Okay? So again, this is a great just little section of uh, we're not really... On the road yet, but we're making preparations to go and do the work. And in this time of preparation, in this ministry of Galilee, uh, so many seeds are being planted. So many of the, the essentials of what Jesus came to do and who he is, so many of them are, are just really visible and tangible here. Uh, just some highlight passages that I want to read that kind of highlight some of the things that I just said about the themes and the, 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 overall, uh, the overall gist of the uh, chapters 4 through 9. Uh, chapter 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. That, in a nutshell, is everything that Jesus is doing. Here's a man who knows his desperation, who demonstrates humility to him. And then Jesus responds to that humility with willingness and with actual power and authority. I I want to cleanse you. And I can and I will and I did. (laughs) It's all there. And this is what he continues to do. That single miracle, I think, has all the elements of what Jesus is doing and saying in this period of his ministry. He's bringing salvation. He's bringing healing to those that know that there's no other way. Chapter 5, verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well... Have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Now he's he's kind of giving a jab there at the Pharisees. He's saying, "Hey, you're righteous. You don't need repentance." What he's trying to show them is, if you think you're righteous, there's nothing I can do for you. If you go to the ER. But then say, they say, okay, what's your problem? And you go, mm, nothing. Well, they're not going to admit you 
and the doctor can't get to work. (laughs) And this is what he sees. This is what he encounters in the Pharisees and in other figures. I will... I want to save you. I want to heal you. But the first thing that needs to happen is you need to admit what's wrong with you. You need to be on board with what's wrong with you before I can do anything. Otherwise, you're just going to stay out there in the waiting room and get angry at the doctors for not doing anything. But you haven't said what's wrong. You have no awareness of your condition. Chapter 7, verse 22. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Right? Seeing and hearing are the response to doing and speaking. Go tell them what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John wants to know if I'm the guy. You tell me if this fits, this fits the description of the Savior. He lists all the miracles that he's been doing. And he says, and the poor, we're coming for the poor. We're coming for the ones who have no other hope. And anyone who can not be offended by my presence receives a blessing. Right? He's going around, he's doing all these things, but some people are taking offense. Some people are clinging to their own self-righteousness. Chapter 7, verse 44. And turning toward the woman. This is in Simon's house, the one that I just talked about. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This is what he's coming to do. If you really know, you really do see your condition, you're aware of it, and you have no other hope, he is the Savior. And he comes to save, and he wants to save. So how does this section, you know, one of the things that Luke wants to do how to, is to give us certainty according to the things that we've been taught. How does this section give us certainty? Well, it establishes the nature of Jesus' mission, the way that he's going about bringing salvation. How is he going to bring about salvation? Well, he heals everything from the spiritual to the physical, but he's also forgiving sins. He's healing the whole person. He's saving The whole person. And because of that, his identity is confirmed. God says this is him at the beginning and the end of the section. So we have certainty of who Jesus is and what he came to do because of these five chapters here. He is the Savior. He is able to save completely and holistically the whole person. And he is willing to save. It's another thing that we see. I am willing. That's in, in, the, in the leper, in his healing of the leper. I will be clean. If you will, you can cleanse me. Yeah, I can. But I'm not just able. I am also willing. 
So this is what we see about Jesus. He is the Savior. And salvation, I mean, you can, we can spend a lot of time talking about that. But salvation is deliverance. Salvation means that it's the same word for, that they use sometimes for healing. I mean, it, it, the, the literal meaning is you are delivered. You are set right. Right? There's something that's overpowering you. There's something that's killing you. There's something that's bowing you over. There's something that's withering your hand. And you are saved from that thing. Jesus is the one who does that. And he is able to do it completely. And he wants to do it. So, let's just wrap it up. What do you need to hear tonight? What, what, do you, what do we need to hear in this tonight? God will want to apply this to each of us a little differently, I think. I would imagine that all of us, to some extent, acknowledge that Jesus is the Savior. Right? That's a pretty, it's a pretty well-known thing. A pretty well-established thing among us. Anybody not believe that Jesus is the Savior? Okay. But I really want to call us to think about what that really means. Think about the area of your life where sin has done its most deforming work. Most of us are aware of this. What the sins I've been saved from. Where have they done their worst work? And, and what, what happened there? Where has sin left you paralyzed? Unable to move? Just motionless? Maybe it's, it's fear. You, have, you cannot progress in a relationship because of your former sins. They've left you paralyzed. Is there a part of your heart that doesn't work right? It, does, it can't love the way that it needs to love. The way that you were created to love. God, God wants to not just save you from your sin, to forgive your sin. God wants to save you from all the ways that sin has deformed you in any part of your person. In your heart. In your mind? In your body? Yes. Where has sin deformed you? Right? I mean, you think of... Sin has consequences. Right? Gluttony has some pretty obvious consequences. God wants to save you from gluttony, but he also wants to save you from the devastating effects of gluttony. And you could go on down the line with the sins. Lust. Lust has some devastating consequences. God wants to forgive you if you repent of your lust. But he wants to save you from the way lust has deformed your heart. This is who Jesus is. He is our Savior. And so I I love when he he heals the guy. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And they say, who are you? To forgive sins. And he goes, Well, would you rather I heal the guy? 
But it's, they're both the same thing. Jesus says, well, I'll heal him, but I can also forgive sins. And just as much as that guy is walking now, he picked up his bed that he was lowered down the roof on. He had to have five friends hold his bed for him. The guy stands up and walks and picks up his bed. That's how much God forgives those sins. He didn't just give him a a shot of morphine. The guy was walking. And so God doesn't just neutralize your sins when he forgives them. He wants to cleanse you and to heal you and to restore you to full health. He does not want you to live the rest of your life with deformity or disease that has been brought on by your sin. Or even leftover side effects. Alright, and so our minds and our hearts, we often receive the salvation of God. But do we really receive the salvation as the full body healing of God? The full person healing of God. And this is what Jesus came to show us. This is how he saves. He is able to restore and to redeem. Right? The leper was cleansed. There's no, he's not contagious anymore. The paralytic can walk on his own, of his own volition. And on down the line. This is the salvation. This is the extent of the salvation. And here's the thing. He wants to. Jesus wants to make you whole. He wants to cleanse you completely from every last shred of deformity and defect and paralysis that's come into your life through sin. He wants to forgive those sins, but heal you completely. But you have to understand. You have to come to him as a sick person, not as a well person, not as a person who mostly has it together. In order for God to do a total salvation work in your life, a total healing work in your life, it really does require full acknowledgement of those deformities on your part. No one who's ever healed by Jesus in Scripture did not fully acknowledge and was sorrowful over their condition. There's a woman who had an issue of blood for years and years and years, and she had spent all of her money on doctors. And she is so aware, and she can't see anything else about herself other than this condition. And that's the moment at which Jesus can heal. And so God, may, the Holy Spirit may need to reveal to you an area of deformity in your heart. An area of paralysis in your mind where you can't do <laughs> what you want to do, what you know you should do. You're, you're, you're paralyzed. And you need to admit your paralysis to God and come before him desperate and say, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can help me love in the way I need to love. If you will, you can help me stop thinking these, this cycle of, of lustful thoughts. If you will, you can help my mind 
Stop fixating on what could go wrong in my life. If you will. But you have to see it as a deformity. You have to come to God and say, This thing has crippled me. And I don't have it together. (laughs) But if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can heal me. So that's what was on my heart tonight as we, as we go through this section. Very simply, Jesus came to bring salvation in miraculous, powerful, authoritative, complete ways. But that salvation only fully touches those people who are fully aware of their need for it. Okay, so I'm not talking about getting saved the way that we continue, the way that we uh, conventionally talk about getting saved. I'm saying, whatever it is that keeps you at bay, whatever it is that deforms your heart, have you brought that to Jesus and asked him to save you in that, in that place? Right? There's so many different conditions listed here. <laughs> And each of them are, are symbolic. You know, there's the man who just has the demons. And he just he rages. He, he, no one can hold him down. Not even chains. Yeah, there's a man who just, his hand doesn't work right. Right? There's, there's a broad spectrum of conditions here. And just like there's a broad spectrum of conditions here in this room. Uh, but Jesus, the Savior, has come. He is able to completely restore. And he wants to do it. And that's what, that's what I want to share. That's, that's the application of this section for me at, you know, at this point in our, our life. So there may be some things that, that God points out in you. And it's not like, oh, I don't think you're going to go to heaven now. It's, are you the person that God created you to be? And if not, what is the thing that, what is, what is left for God to be able to save you from? What consequences of your former life and sin have left you still deformed and unable to to be who he's called you to be? Let's let him come and deal with us in those ways. Because he's here to do it. That's why he came. He's able and he wants to. Just hear that. It's why he came. He is able and he wants to. When he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. This is our God. This is the one whose body and blood we just partook of. This is the one whose spirit is here convincing us of these truths. This is the one who delivered to us this wonderful testimony of the things that Jesus did and said. So let's pray. And... uh, 
You may, uh, th- there's a, lots of different ways you could respond. But if you need to respond, I want to encourage you to, to definitely respond in some way. Tell somebody. You can come talk to me. I'll pray with you. Um, get these things out and say, I need healing in this area. And we can ask God for it and pray together. It doesn't have to be tonight. Although, if you want to stick around and we can pray, that's fine. Um, But I know that there are at least a few people in here that probably really need to hear this and need to respond in a significant way. And, And as you do, you will experience a rush of life and service in the kingdom. After Jesus touches this ailment in your heart or your mind. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to seek, to save that which was lost. Thank you for revealing your salvation to us. Thank you for being willing and able to cleanse your people from all unrighteousness. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would uh, convict us, that you would reveal to us the ways in which we are still uh, in need of healing in our hearts. Lord, the, the areas of our lives that are deformed, that are contrary to the way, to the glorious way that you created us to live. And Lord, give us a, give us a good desperation. Lord, not a, not a despair. We know despair comes from the devil. But Lord, give us a, a, a desperation that looks to you and that falls on its face before you, Jesus, and says, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, we are convinced of who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Savior. And so, Lord, bring us before you. Bring us to your feet. And stretch forth your hand, Lord, into our lives. And touch us and make us clean. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.